In our community, one of the most important things you can do is use your voice to express your opinion, to express your thoughts, and to express your feelings. But if you are not equipped to do that, you'll stay silent. Today's guest is going to talk about public speaking and how he leveraged public speaking to teach an entire generation how to stand up for themselves and speak out. Welcome to the Black Equity Podcast. on the line. Neil, are you there? I'm here. Welcome to the Black Equity Podcast. Thank you for having me, DJ. You're very welcome. Tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and a little bit about your company. Sure. Well, I started off in when I started working as a product development engineer in the medical device industry, and I did that for a number of years. And one of my, I guess, part of my job was was doing presentations in front of senior management every month as a project lead. And I remember when I took the job, as a, when I moved out here to California where I'm at now, I, I had no intention or I, I didn't know that that was going to be part of my job. I only found that out maybe a few months into it that I have to be giving these presentations in front of management. And public speaking was never really my strong suit, to be very honest, or I hadn't done it in many years. And so those first few presentations I gave in front of management were absolutely horrendous. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't know it was possible to sweat that profusely. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was coming out of everywhere, DJ. Right. It was pretty gross. Right, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, serious, serious dry cleaning bills. But, you know, those, those first few, yeah. So, uh, you know, I got through them, but I knew that I had to get better at it over because I had to give these every month. And I didn't want to look like an idiot every time I had to give a presentation in front of these people just flop sweating all over the place. But I, I definitely did get a lot better over time. I did Toastmasters. I, of course, having to do these things every month, you know, just getting those reps in, you get better over time with, with the practice. And I basically took everything that I learned in becoming more proficient as a public speaker, and I turned it into an online course, and I called it Teach the Geeks to Speak. So now I help engineers and scientists, basically people like myself, people that work in the STEM fields that have to do presentations, and I help them with their public speaking. Wow. That's, that's, that's a truly uh, rooted issue for a lot of people, because uh, one of the biggest things is people are afraid to get in front of other people and, and voice their opinions. Uh, why do you think it is that people get so nervous in front of uh, people? It probably has to do with wanting, not wanting to look like a fool like, <laughs> like I did. You know, you, especially in a, in a workplace setting where the people that you're in front of, I mean, their opinion matters. I mean, when it comes to maybe even you know, pr- promotions and pay raises, you want to look your best in front of these people. So obviously you're going to be nervous. But, you know, flop sweating in front of these people is probably not the way to go. You want to figure out a way to remain as, as calm as possible when you're when you're presenting in front of these people. And something to help with that is knowing your material well, but also, you know, taking your audience into account when it comes to you know preparing your presentation in the first place. You want to present things that they actually want to hear, and that's going to make, make it more likely that they stay engaged with what you're saying. Very true. So why focus on the geek part? 
us, you know, I know it's a, a catchphrase as far as engineers and people in tech, but why focus on that particular area? Is it because what you're familiar with or is it because it was really needed uh, in that area or both? It's actually both. I mean, I, I, it, I, as I said, I worked in medical devices as an engineer and I wasn't going to, it didn't seem authentic to, for someone like myself to, to teach or marketers or salespeople about public speaking because I never worked in marketing and sales. I basically stuck with what I knew. Right, right, right. And so how has been the response of, with, with people taking this course and learning how to have public speaking, what has been the response you've been saying? Yeah, the response has been it's probably been has been great. I mean, when I first started it, the the course, I, I was selling it mainly to people, but then I started selling it to companies too because the companies see the need in their engineers and scientists becoming more proficient in public speaking too. And I wasn't I wasn't a unicorn in that I wasn't the only engineer that had to get up in front of management and talk. <laughs> you know, a lot of engineers have to do that too, and it's a little nerve-wracking for all, you know, all, a, a large segment of us. And so, the the course has been very well received. I've been really, really happy with the with the support for it. And so, something key that you're saying there is, it started off as something maybe to sell direct to uh, an individual, but what you found was the the B two B or business to business opportunity uh, created itself. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't something that I thought about when I first put the course together, but it kind of just worked out that way. Awesome. And and for me, I've always been big on B2B, mainly because B2B can offer uh, a lot more opportunities because obviously if a business is acquiring your services, uh, they may have the necessary funding that maybe an individual uh, may not. And so you can actually uh, see more return on investment when you're working directly with a company that has to, you know, service this to over 50 to 100 people, as opposed to one person, you have to make 50 to 100 sales to each individual person. That's, that's absolutely right. But not only that, but when you're selling directly to a person, they have to actually admit to themselves that maybe this is something that I, I should get better at. Mm. The companies already know that their engineers and scientists need to become better at public speaking. So it's not as hard to sell. And so do those companies, to the best of your knowledge, do they make this a requirement or do they just offer it as an opportunity if you want to do it? How, how have they been handling that part? Yeah, it's definitely been the, the latter. So it definitely hasn't been a, a requirement. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And so what has been your experience as far as speaking? How, how often are you speaking in front of different groups and, and different uh, uh, settings. Uh, how often are you finding yourself uh, on the circuit speaking and, and talking about uh, your product and the different things that you're doing? Well, at least a couple times a month. So there, you know, I, t- I try to target the engineering societies. So obviously, they're they're the, the people that are a member of those societies. They 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 work in engineering, so they work at companies. So that's a great way to by speaking to the the local societies here in the San Diego area where I live at. And then there's also, uh, I did webinars for a little while. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't too keen on that, uh, on the webinars. Really, okay. I, I think the, you know, getting in front of, actually getting in front of people is, has been really helpful in, in kind of, they see your face, they see how you speak. And so it's a, it's an easier sell in that way too, as opposed to, you know, just being over the computer. But you know, the societies and then speaking to companies too, and then afterward, you know, offering the, the course for their employees. And that's an, a, another a great way to get sales that way too. kind of doing a lunch and learn at the companies. They see, you know, I tell them about the course, I tell them about my journey and becoming better at public speaking. And then, and then, then they see, okay, this guy, he, he got better at public speaking. So, and what he's talking about in what's in his course seems to make sense to us. And when I put the course together, I made sure that it had a process that, that people could follow. And the, the process is repeatable. And basically, if you follow the process for any presentation that you have to give, you'll you'll get better at public speaking. And I think putting the course in uh, in that format as in, in the form of a process has been really helpful in selling, especially to engineers. Since I mean, even myself working in medical devices, we had to follow a process to develop medical devices. So it's very applicable to to that segment. So if I'm making an investment in this course, how how long? Is it going to take to take it? Is it something that I need to go back to often? What is what is kind of the format and the duration of the, the course? 
the course is from beginning to end about 90 minutes. Okay. I made sure, yeah, so I made sure that the course was short because if I made it, if I thought, I thought if I made it longer, people wouldn't finish it. And, <laughs> I, and, and that was obviously wouldn't be, would, would not meet the goal of you know, becoming better at public speaking if you didn't actually finish the course. So essentially, you know, just like kind of my own personality, I try to take out as much fluff and just get to the, if you get to the points. And then at the end of the course, I suggest exercises that the, that the people can do to, to actually implement what I talk about in the course, you know, in practice, because it, you can take all the courses, read all the books, listen to all the podcasts all you want, but if you don't actually put what you learn into practice, and so you didn't really do all that much. I agree. And so someone's listening to this right now, and they're kind of on the fence. They're trying to figure out, well, I know I need help in public speaking. I know it would be a benefit to me. But what is something from the course or even just your personal experience uh, has been a nugget for why public speaking is so vital if you're going to be in business or really in any type of of sector? Why is public speaking so important? Uh, You know, it it can be the difference between projects getting approved and not getting approved. It can be the difference between your pitch at a, at a competition or a pitch in front of a company being accepted or not, you know, when people in the tech field, we have a whole lot of technical expertise, obviously, but if you're not able to communicate that in a way that the people in the audience can understand, well, all your expertise is, has gone for nothing. And that's why public speaking is very important. You have to be able to convey your ideas in a way that's palatable to the people that are listening to you. I agree. And so communication, comprehension, uh, and uh, being able to get your message across for what it is you're trying to get to the next level on. Whatever that approval is, whatever that project is, it, it always is going to require, most cases, it's going to require other people to see it and understand, hey, this is something I want to be a part of. And then that then creates approvals. It, it creates uh, a movement uh, and the momentum for that project to get completed. For sure. And and if the people that are listening don't understand, the answer will always be no. Mm, I like that. If the people who are listening do not understand, the answer will always be no. And so, and so during the, as I take your course, as I'm learning, you're going to help teach me, uh, maybe not necessarily how to get a yes, but how to make sure that at the very least they understand what my message is. That's it. I mean, when, as I said, technical people have a whole lot of technical expertise. And if they were to just spit it out in the way that they understand it, if you're, especially if you're speaking to a, a, a lay audience, they're not going to understand anything you're talking about. And if they don't understand, they're going to stop listening. And if they stop listening, well, you're definitely not going to get a yes. I agree. I agree 100%. And so does the course also cover uh, how to kind of set up like you were saying, these lunch and learns and, and kind of creating your own world where you can bring people to you and have these conversations? Or is that something additional outside of the course where somebody could work with you and learn, well, how do I set up kind of a system where people can come to me for different events well, as I'm speaking and talking about uh, different projects and things that I'm working on? Yeah, that, that definitely would be something that's separate because I, I wanted to keep the course short, you know, to the 90-minute time frame. What I really focus on in the course is before, beginning, or well, before, during, and after the presentation, all the things that you should be focused on, you know, during those those three time points. Okay. And I basically frame that in this six step process that I developed. Awesome. How, so, how long ago was it where you decided I'm going to solve this root problem and help out people who may not even realize they need the help, and so I tell them that they may need. How long ago did you begin that journey of deciding to do this? And then how long did it take to actually develop the course? Well, I, the idea for the course came last year in, in 2018. And to develop it, well, the first iteration of it took maybe a couple of months. Okay. But, the, but the, that first iteration was terrible. And <laughs> I, I realized, okay. yeah, the, the pre, I, I, I sent it out to you know, a few trusted associates or friends to look it over and they said you can't sell this this is uh, the the first few the first iteration was just myself there was no process it was just me just kind of a stream of consciousness talking about all the things that I thought were important in public speaking it was videos I was sitting at my dinner table the the lighting was poor 
and I'm pretty dark skinned, so I really need some good lighting. Mm-hmm. So, so the, you know, it, it was bad, and I, uh, I took all that criticism, well, criticism, my feedback to heart, and I actually hired somebody to help me in in developing a better course. They said that instead of video, you want to do slides, yourself speaking over slides, which would be better. And so I, I basically revamped the course. I developed the process so that it would be easier to follow and repeatable. And the, the second iteration, that took maybe a, another couple of months because I basically started from scratch. So yeah, from beginning to end, I guess, with the, couple, the first, well, with the iterations, the two iterations, it took me about four or five months. Awesome. Now, there's a key thing you said there that I want to make sure we pick up and look at uh, as wisdom. You, you put out your first, uh, your first uh, prototype of this particular course, and then you showed it to a few trusted associates, a few trusted advisors, people's opinions that you actually trusted. To me, that is so key for really anything, anything that you're working on to have a, a, a small group of people that you can go to uh, and be vulnerable with and say, hey, I'm working on this particular project. What are your honest feedback? What is your honest uh, takeaways from what I'm working on. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and it's a good thing I did that because I, I truly believe if I just put out that first iteration, it wouldn't have been as successful as it, as it has become. So where did you get that that wisdom to know, hey, let me just kind of double check here before I put it out to the world. Is that something that was taught or is that just something that you automatically do in your profession? It definitely was not something that was taught. So I, I took a course, an online, yeah, it was an online course, and they were about how to build a course, actually. <laughs> they okay. got course, courses about how to build courses. Right. And, and one of the first things they talk about is when you're finished your course is to get beta testers to look it over and to provide, you know, those, that type of feedback. And I took that to heart, and I, I made sure I did that when, when I was done. Yeah, I'm really big on beta testing. Uh, the thing with, with beta is you have to give the beta user enough time to, to make sure that their critique and the way that they understand what they're using, um, enough time to make sure they're making the, the right, um, you know, decision and giving you the right feedback. You know, sometimes I see with, with beta testing, if we want answers within like 24 hours. And sometimes it's not going to be that fast. It depends on what the project is. Sometimes you need to kind of use it for a few weeks before you can uh, actually say anything. And sometimes you can figure it out in five minutes. It all kind of depends on what the project, you know, what the project is. Yeah, I mean, when you're asking somebody, essentially with beta testers, you're asking somebody for a favor because, you know, you're asking them to do your course or whatever product that you're trying to get feedback on. So you're basically beholden to their schedule. So you could say 24 hours, but I mean, <laughs> if they ain't got no 24 hours, you'll get it when you get it. Yeah. Yeah. I wish more people understood that. I've had a few people that I've offered to beta test for, and then they want it back so quick. It's like, well, I can't give you an honest feedback. Uh, that fast, uh, especially something as detailed as either a course or a, a website or an app or whatever it is, I I want to live with it for a little bit so I can become it and, and, and give you a true, honest feedback. But hey, you know, that's just me as a, a, a beta user, a beta tester, uh, an experience that I have. And hey, well, if you're asking somebody for a favor, you're on their schedule. I agree. I agree. Uh, so also, in addition to building this course for, to teach people how to have uh, better public speaking skills, you've also released and published your own book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. The book is called Ask Uncle Neil, Why Is My Hair Curly? It's about my nephew asking me why his hair is the way it is, and I use science to answer the question. And the motivation for the book was essentially, I mentioned I worked in medical device as an engineer and at all the companies I've worked at, I was the only black engineer and I don't think that that has to be that way. And the reason I think a lot of, of, of us don't, or a lot of black people don't go into the STEM fields is they, they think it's not for them, it's for you know others to do. And that's just not the case. There are no careers that are off limits to black people. And I wanted to write a book for young kids so I'm, I'm talking about age six to nine, so that they know or they have the confidence to know 
that there are there are no careers that are off limits to them. They could do whatever they want, and and I, I firmly believe that the book is the first. It's going to be the first of a of a series where my nephew is asking me why something is the way it is, and I use science to answer the question. And the, I focused on little kids because as you grow older, the, the there are more I guess naysayers, there are more obstacles to overcome. And if the children know from a young age that there's nothing off limits to them, then as they grow older, it'll be more difficult to convince them otherwise. Mm. Okay, so ages six to nine, you have a book that is potentially uh, going to help them with understanding their identity and understanding that they have the potential to do anything that they want to in this world, no matter what their skin color is, no matter what their hair looks like. It, it, the world is open for them to play any game that they want to play. Well, yeah, I mean, I used hair. Essentially, the book is about hair and it's not about hair. So, right. yeah, it's about my nephew asking me why his hair is the way it is. But essentially, the book is about using hair as a vehicle, essentially, to, to teach black kids that there are no careers off limits to them and that STEM is for them as well. I love it. I love it. So tell us about STEM. Why is there so few of people who look like you and I in that field, to your estimation? Yeah, so, well, I think it has a lot to do with confidence. It has a lot to do with access as well. I mean, mm. I often hear that you have to see it to believe it. And I'm always curious as to what that means to, to people when, when they hear that phrase. When I hear it, it means, well, if I'm, if I'm a black kid and I don't see black people doing things that I want to do, then that means that I can't do it. And I, and I firmly disagree with that message because oftentimes, I mean, if you're waiting for a black person that, you know, a black person to do things that are of interest to you, you might be waiting forever. You can find your role models anywhere. If there are people that are doing things that you want to do, regardless of what they look like, then that means you can do it too. I firmly believe that. And so, I mean, I know I wrote this book as, you know, as a black man to, to encourage black children to, to go into the STEM fields or at least at least consider it. But if I hadn't written this book and there were, you know, there are other people you know, that don't look like us that are doing things that are of interest to you, please believe that you can do it too. Yeah. So for those listening who have no idea what STEM is, what is STEM and why is it important to our overall society? Right. STEM is an acronym for science, technology, engineering, and math. It's important to society because it's the future. I mean, you use, essentially, you use STEM every day. You use a laptop, you use your iPad, you use a cell phone. It's, it's around you. You drive a car. All of these things are, are involved in, in STEM. And there is no reason. And another thing that kind of annoys me is when I hear, you know, black people talk about, well, I'm not technical and, you know, I, I'm, and I, I can't work in the STEM fields. Well, that's not true. And there's no reason for you not to be technical, too. I've, I have a, So I also have a, a, a YouTube channel where I interview people that are in the STEM fields that do public speaking. And one of the women that I spoke to, she started off her, her life as a theater actress. She went to a coding boot camp for, I think, three months. And now she works at Microsoft as a, as a software engineer. So just because you start off non-technical doesn't mean you can't become technical later. There really are no excuses as to why anyone can't get into the STEM fields. There's so many avenues to, to do so. I agree. I know we talked one time. I, I think we have the opportunity now to, to dig in if, if it's okay. We talked about diversity and inclusion. You remember that conversation we had? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> what, what do you think about diversity and inclusion? What are your honest thoughts on it? My honest thoughts about diversity and inclusion is that it is, what's the best way to put this? I don't care for it, DJ. Okay. Uh, tell, tell, tell me more. Tell me more. Yeah. So when I, when I think of diversity and inclusion, I think of box, box tech checking exercises. I think about, you know, asking others to accept you in, into, their, into their group. And I just, I, I, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. And, and I think it also, it, it takes away from, from black people building their own tables. Uh, I'm a firm believer in that. And when you build your own table, you build your own business, you build your own ecosystem. You don't have to ask for, for you don't have to ask for acceptance from others. You don't, you know, you don't, there's no need to sit on a diversity and inclusion panel at some company or <laughs> at some, at some conference, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I just, I, I, I guess I don't know, maybe it's ego, maybe it's pride, maybe I don't know what it is, but 
I'm just not in the business of asking people to accept me. I, I am who I am, accept me or don't, but I mean, it's, it's not something that I'm, 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 it's not something I'm craving. Others acceptance. It, it's, um, you know, I, I, some days I'm like, okay, I can see the importance of diversity and inclusion, but here's kind of the way I view it just so we can get it on the record and, and have it on the podcast as documented opinion, not necessarily fact. But if I go to somebody's, uh, I don't know, dinner party, and I get to the dinner party and there's this huge feast going on, and I walk through the door and they say, yeah, you're allowed to you know, be in the building. But by the way, the feast is outside. There's a huge table outside. Any type of food you can think of, your, whatever your favorite food is there. They say, you're allowed to be here, but you're not allowed to sit at this table. And then I spend the whole time at the party telling everybody, they don't want me at this table. They don't want me at this table. By the way, (laughs) the people who are at the party are also part of whoever's told me that I can't be at the table. And let's say I've been begging for five hours, six hours to finally get at the table. And so they, they open the screen door and they let me sit down at that table. I guess I would question, if I'm watching that movie, if I'm seeing that person, I would question, well, by the time you got to that table, what did they put in that food? What, what, did they, what did they put in your drink? They told you that they didn't want you there, and you begged and begged and begged to be at the table. <laughs> and now, magically, they've made a, a nice little spot for you, and they pour you whatever drink it is, and they, get, they make the plate for you. You have no idea what's in that food. You have no idea what's in that drink. You, you, you don't even know if the, the chair you're going to be sitting on is actually sturdy enough to actually sit in because they've told you they didn't want you there. That's just kind of the way I, I view some days diversity and inclusion. Am I crazy to view it that way? No, not at all. I, I view it the same way, and I view it that way all the days, not just some of the days. I mean, that time, all that time you spent, you know, begging these people to, to accept you at the feast, you could have went somewhere else and ate. Yes. Right next door. Right next door, they're having a barbecue with your own people. And they were telling you when he pulled up in the driveway, they, they told you, hey, brother, come on over. You're like, no, I'm with these people. They're better than you. You didn't say it, but you, you implied it because you're right. begging to be at that table. But everything is over here. They got the crabs. They got the barbecue. They got, if you're a vegetarian, they said, come on over. But because the house didn't look uh, as magnificent as the one across the street and maybe the grass wasn't as green, uh, magically you wanted to be with these people who told you they didn't want you there. It's almost like we want what what people tell us we can't have. And I wonder if they tell us we can't have it to make us want it even more. It's like <laughs> dangling a carrot in front of someone. Oh, man. That's, that's, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a problem. It's, it's so... And so... What's the word I'm looking? It's pathetic, really. I yeah. mean, those same people. You, how can someone respect you? No one respects beggars. Exactly. <laughs> I, I I don't get it. But so, but there's there's. I we just did an episode recently about um, Brian. Uh, I can't think of his last name. He was on the Breakfast Club within the last twenty four hours of us recording this. Uh, he owns the Weather Channel. I can't think of his last name. Byron Allen. Byron Allen. So he's on the Breakfast Club, and he was talking about the reason why they killed Martin Luther King Jr. was uh, the Perez Scott King told him this. The reason why they killed Martin Luther King Jr. was because he was looking for economic inclusion uh, within the United States. And so I, my my thing is, I'm for I'm in I'm for inclusion economically. I get that part because I listened to his speech, The Other America, last night, and then we recorded an episode about what, what my findings were. And he was saying that millions and millions of, of acres of land were given to uh, European immigrants when they came to America, but none was ever given to uh, those of the Black community or other communities outside of uh, some of the Native Americans who got their reservations. Besides, besides them, no other land has been given out. And so he was talking about this idea of economic inclusion and making sure that we, the amount of funding from the, from the government is, is, is put to all communities equally. That, that makes sense for me. If, if we're going to talk about inclusion 
and, and things of that nature, I do want to make sure that the pie is split up equally. But I don't want to have to beg for it. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you. I think when, when it comes to government, yeah, that, then, then that makes sense to me as well. I guess when, when, I, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking of a more private enterprise. And, yeah. and even, even myself, I, I thought about what if I were to run a company one day and I, then I have people telling me, well, you have to do this, you have to do that. I don't know if I want, I don't know if I'd want, you know, others telling me, oh, you need to hire X amount of this group and X amount of that group. I, I don't know if I'd want that on myself either. No, because I was, you know, as I'm acquiring businesses and assets, I want to put black executives in position. And what what's going to happen if they try to reverse this thing the other way around and they say, yeah, you're black owned, but in order to be black owned, you must have at least three executives on a, a, a six-person executive team. It's like, wait, hold on now. <laughs> you, you had all these years of not doing that, and now because we've begged and begged for diversity and inclusion, you can use that as a chess piece uh, to kind of flip the script on us as we're finally building and, 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 and having our own. Now you're going to demand a seat at our table. And I don't know if I want you to be able to just have a seat at the table. You're absolutely right. I guess, you know, if it's good for the goose, it has to be good for the gander, right? <laughs> That's what they're going to do. They're going to flip it on us because what's going to happen is we're going to get very powerful in the things that we're doing, just like we did with Black Wall Street, just like we did with the, the second Black Wall Street that was in Durham, North Carolina. And they're going to say, well, you have so much money going on here. You have so much going on. Why can't we be here? You, you're, you know, you're excluding us out. It's the same thing that people argue about when they hear about HBCUs. And then they, if you notice, a lot of the scholarships end up going to people who don't look like you and I on sports scholarships at HBCUs. And so it, if we aren't careful, the very arguments and the things we're begging for are going to be used against us. No question. <laughs> That's why I don't care for it. And so, so in your journey, have you ever benefited from diversity and inclusion? I know you were saying you're one of the, the few black engineers in some of the spaces that you're in. Is that something that you've encountered or how, how have you kind of dealt with that in, in your particular field? You know, to be very honest, I had never even heard the, firm, uh, heard the term diversity and inclusion until maybe last year okay. or, maybe, or maybe even earlier this year. It hasn't been that long. I, I didn't even know what it was. I remember somebody was, I was at a networking event and this person I was talking to said he, he was going to be a black guy and he said he's going to give, be giving a presentation at a university and he said, you're probably going to have to put some DNI stuff in there. And I was like, DNI? I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> he said, oh, diversity and inclusion. I was like, wow. I was like, oh. Uh, then, I, then I actually went and looked it up to find out what it meant. I was like, right, oh, right. okay. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely not something on my radar. It was just, I noticed that, you know, I was the only black engineer at the company. And, you know, I didn't look at it, even when I looked at it, even back then, being the only black engineer there, it wasn't like anyone ever made me feel uncomfortable being the only black. No one ever tried to touch, tried to touch my hair or anything like that. <laughs> right. No, no uh, microaggressions. That's another term I learned maybe earlier this year or maybe la or late last year. Like nothing ever racial ever happened, at least to my knowledge. Right. Maybe, maybe I was just too naive to even know. I was just focused on doing the job and going home and coming back and doing the job the next day. But, you know, a lot of the things that I hear people talk about now, about things that they've experienced at their workplaces, I'm just like, wow, that, that sounds terrible. I, I, I can't relate because none of that stuff ever happened to me. Man, you're blessed. You know, I worked for a, a top five banking company before I went out on my own and started a boutique uh, private equity firm. And then obviously now we've we've built this platform up and also offer consulting for uh, black owned businesses. Before that, I was working for a major bank in uh, America, in North America. And I'll be completely honest, it, was, it wasn't microaggression at all. It was whatever is above macroaggression, it, it was that. It was this idea of uh, we're going to put people in middle management who are white, and everybody else who works at this bank is more than likely going to be black. And you're going to listen to exactly what we tell middle management to do that comes from up top from corporate. And every week, something else is changing. Every week, they're, 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 they're sending out emails to middle management and middle management's coming down on us to make sure that we, you know, meet certain quotas. And recently, this bank has been in the news about all of this 
about how they've uh, treated uh, applicants that uh, were black and Hispanic and how they've also, um, you know, treated their employees who were black and Hispanic. And so it was very, you know, I guess it kind of depends on, you know, the culture of the environment of, of the company you're working with. Yeah, I mean, that's that sounds horrible. <laughs> it, was, it was rough, man. It was rough. But, hey, you took the, the step of saying, you know, to hell with this, I'm going to start my yeah. own thing. And I ain't gonna deal with this no more. I'm not begging you to be nicer to me. I'm, and I think, I'm, I'm out of here. I think that's where I get my stance on diversity and inclusion. I do believe in, I do believe in diverse representation, which is one of the companies that I love uh, that is out there. And they, what they do is they they focus on uh, attorneys, agents, um, just different people who represent. Uh, people in entertainment, sports, and other areas. I'm, I think it's important for us to create uh, an alternative for those who are playing their different games out here in this world to say, hey, I don't have to have a white lawyer. I can have a black lawyer. I don't have to have uh, a, a white agent. I can have a black agent. I'm for that in creating a, a diverse option. But I don't want diversity to be an opp- opportunity for someone to uh, have to give me a seat. I want it to be something that I can just take for myself and build for myself. I don't, I, to me, I don't want to look back on my life and say, well, I got in because of a mandate that was put in by somebody else. And they really didn't want me there. But, I, you know, I, I fit a statistic and that's why I'm here. Oh man, yeah, the whole I guess the whole quota system. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. You want to be in there on your own merits, not because you know. But then when you start your own thing, when you build your own table, you know why you're there. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. You. Big, you want no quota. You you measured out the table. You cut the wood. You put the the chairs there. You you created your own feast. You you put it all together. You created your own reality, and then everybody that's around you is part of your dream world. It's, it's everything that you ever wanted, just like that. How they wanted it, they wanted. Here's here's what I will say. If somebody's building a company and they're building their own table and they don't want me there, that's that's perfectly fine by me. As long as there's not laws and things in place that then prohibit prohibit me from building my own. That's where to me the biggest issue is. If diversity and inclusion tackles that, then I'm all for it. But if it's just Hey, I want to see that your table rather than let me build my own and don't disrupt me as I'm building it. Then that's where it, it can get a little tricky. Yeah, I, I firmly, I firmly agree with you, DJ. And I think a lot of a lot of the times people focus on diversity and inclusion in, in terms of you know getting people into companies because they, they see that as the easier route. It's 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 a it's work to to build your own thing from scratch. It's mm. not as much of work to to enforce a quota system. Mm, that's what it is. They, it, it, it's less work to just say, hey, we want in, than to say, let's build our own. Yep. And it can be, in many ways, a little lazy to just demand seats. And yep, you <laughs> demand seats at some place no, you're not wanted, and then you want to complain about all the microaggressions you get from the people that never wanted you to be there in the first place. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's a little backwards but but then when i listen to people who are advocating for it here's what they're saying they're saying if we don't have that uh diversity and inclusion then we're going back to segregation and i don't (laughs) i don't know if i agree with that or not but i have heard that several times what is your stance on on that statement well black wall street existed uh, pre-integration, yep. as did the the the, the black the second wall, Black Wall Street you mentioned in Durham, North Carolina, and yeah, they did pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> well that's what I think about it. Did you but, get a, but, Did you get a chance to to check out uh, Watchmen and that first episode of Watchmen? They they made a reference to Black Wall Street. No, I did not. Yeah, if you get a chance, check out. Well, really, they have two episodes right now. I would check out both. Uh, there's a show on HBO, Watchmen, starring Regina. Is it Hall? Uh, I can't remember what her. I'll I'll look it up. But um, it's not Regina Hall. I know I'm wrong. Um, Regina King. Regina King. Yes. Okay. It has uh, Regina King in it. And so the first 
the first part of Watchmen uh, takes place basically in 19, I believe it's 1921, um, with Black Wall Street. And there's a Black family and a Black theater watching a Black film. And then the next thing we know, there's a bombing on Black Wall Street. And then that's how the show starts. And it creates the narrative for Watchmen uh, of where they're going with this. And I would encourage anyone from our culture to check it out and see uh, at least uh, what could have potentially happened and what was what was happening at that time. And, and what they've done is they've taken that moment and they created an alternate universe of how things could be today if, if it went a certain way. And so I would encourage everybody to go out and, and check that out. Yeah, for sure. You know, black people really need to understand that we, we come from a mighty people. I mean, in Africa, we, we were kings and queens, and I doubt that those kings and queens were begging for anything. Yeah. You're right. It, 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 it makes absolutely no sense to me, but I, I guess we've gotten in this culture where... Okay, so let me say this. I don't think reparations... It depends, depending on how you argue it, I don't think that's begging for anything because it was already promised. I believe reparations is actually uh, required if you're if you're bringing people over, uh, not even bringing people over, if you're enslaving people from Africa and putting them into another land, and then after that's all done, you say, okay, you're no longer slaves, but then you offer no, your government offers no economic prosperity to these groups of people. You just throw them out in the wilderness. Uh, it, it doesn't make make sense, especially when you've promised forty acres in the mule to these people, and then you have a track record for all other nationalities up to that point of, of providing reparations to the Italians, to the Indians, to different people that you've given reparations to. I don't think that's begging, but I will say there are a lot of people who are having the reparations conversation that are begging. And so uh, it, it kind of is that slippery slope. I don't think it's anything to beg for. It, reparations is a requirement, and for whatever reason, they just haven't given it uh, to our culture. I absolutely agree. Yeah, reparations to me is a completely separate issue. It has to do with with giving and getting. So this country was built off the backs of 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 slaves. And what did the slaves get in return? Mm. They've got nothing. <laughs> they, they, they got nothing in return. Oh, they so, got a lot in return. Just wasn't nothing positive. Nothing positive. So yeah. the reparations, that's the return. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, it, it, it's common sense. And it makes me wonder why, you know, all these, you know, presidential candidates are avoiding, uh, you know, even really having a conversation. They just all keep saying HR 40. We'll study it. We'll study it. I don't know what there is to study. We, we really, <laughs> it, yeah, I don't I don't get that's how you know it's all BS. Yeah, they're kicking the can, man. It's like we'll, we'll have a study on that and then the study will come out. And like, we need another study on the study. Yeah, and I'm studying the study on the study. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's study uh, forever. And perpetual it, students. It reminds me of what the police officers always say. You know, if a if a police officer does something wrong, they'll say, "Well, we'll investigate our ourselves and let you know what our findings are." It's like, wait, what? You're the the police are going to investigate the police? That doesn't make sense. There has to be somebody separate from you to look at this. And I, I think um, for the government to to say. Well, we're going to investigate ourselves to see what would be appropriate for ourselves to, you know, give money or whatever form. It doesn't even have to be money. I, I do think money should be a part of it, but there should be a whole economic change to the way that uh, we treat uh, African Americans, blacks, however you want to, you know, classify it. Especially when you're dealing with redlining, you're dealing with uh, the, the improper ways of gentrification. Uh, over the years, it's just too much uh, to just overlook and say, we'll study it later. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you. And, you know, the, the longer this takes, the more it, it, it's unlikely, you know, from, from slavery, slavery ended in, you know, in the 1800s, uh, you know, the people that would be paying the money out now had no involvement in slavery. So why should they be the ones to pay it out? And the longer this goes on, the more, I guess, that argument will be used. Because it's been further removed. And they knew that. <laughs> they knew, well, if we push it long enough, 
then we can always say, well, we had nothing to do with it. And we all know that the the whole reason why you're sitting in that house that is bought and paid for, that the reason why you're able to, you know, raise the necessary capital is because you have benefited off the backs of unpaid labor uh, for for an entire group of people who uh, have have had to build this entire country and you've done nothing but sit back and, and wait uh, to use that argument. So I agree a thousand percent. What would you say, so just to play, I don't want to say devil's advocate. Well, yeah, let's play I'm, God's I'm not, advocate. Let's yeah, play I'm God's def- advocate. definitely not. I'm a child of God, for, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so what would you say to the people who would say, you know, the, the people that were slave owners back then, Mm-hmm. They they were descendants from where people from where from like maybe you know France you know England those, those type of countries. Mm-hmm. What would you say to the people that said you know I'm my my family has nothing to do with slavery. My my the country where my my parents or my family is descended from weren't weren't slave countries. So why should I be beholden to to pay any kind of reparations? I had nothing to do with that. But see, okay, so I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak as if I'm talking to that person. I'm not asking you to pay reparations. I'm asking for the government. Why Why are you, I know it's not you, but why are you so enamored on the the reparations going out? Why, why does it affect you so much if it's not actually technically your money? And I know your argument would be, well, I'm a taxpaying citizen. A taxpayer, right. Well, then how come you weren't upset with all the other reparations that went out over the years from this government? I was alive then. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, so reparations can no longer happen because you're alive. Yeah, that's that's how it goes, right? <laughs> because because now that you're on the planet, the reparations can no longer happen from the U.S. government until you die, and and then at that point we can go back to reparations. Yeah, well, when they die, then their descendants will be like, I was exactly. I wasn't alive then too. <laughs> but it, it's a fair argument. I get it. You weren't there. You had nothing to do with it. But my thing is, then why not join us? Why not realize that the, the the wrong that this country did and say, "Hey, I wasn't there, and I may I may or may not have benefited from this, but obviously something's wrong here. Something should be done." The only reason why people are upset is because there's money involved. Yep, for sure. And if if reparations was something that had nothing to do with money, they'd be all for it. And there is actually a way to do it where it would have no money involved. But then it's going to hurt the country. And here's what I mean. Imagine if every person who was a, a, a descendant of those who were enslaved, humans that were enslaved, imagine if all those people didn't have to pay uh, you know, as much on taxes. What if they only had a 5% tax? What, what, what if, if you don't want to pay us, then you have to do something to offset it. Okay, you don't want to give us money, then uh, uh, we should have free health care. We should have free education. We should have a 5% tax. We should receive uh, equity on all marijuana transactions that go forward since you're legalizing it now. I mean, there's ways to, to make it happen without it being, quote unquote, a check. But you, you don't even want to explore that. You, 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 you rather just throw out, you know, um, we're going to pay this amount so then everybody can say, no, 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 we can't give $10 billion. And then it, and then the conversation dies. Yeah, well, you know, all those things that you mentioned, there's costs involved with those too. So free healthcare, you know, free education, you know, all of that costs money. So even when if you're not giving out a check, there's still money involved. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, th- th- there's the only the the way to fix <laughs> the way to fix everything. I think it's even in the Bible if we want to even use the Bible as a reference, but. Uh, you know, money solves all things. That's what the Bible says. I'm not sure if that's you know accurate, but that's what it says. And so a lot of these people are claiming to follow the teachings of Christianity and claiming to be uh, readers of the Bible. Money solves all things. So if you want to solve this issue, you have to put the necessary economic um, power behind your decision. If you really want to see how somebody cares about something, see where they put their money at. Your money, where you where you put your money is where you put your heart. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the fact that people aren't willing to put money into reparations means they they, they don't value it too much because it doesn't affect them. Why do they care? I agree. Now, one thing that people should do with their money is they should invest in themselves, especially if they're looking to improve themselves 
in public speaking, and especially if they want their children to understand the, the importance of, of understanding self-identity and knowing that they can do anything. So with that being said, how do people go get your course and how do people purchase your book? So to learn more about the course, they can go to teachthegeek.com. And then to learn more about the book, you can go to askuncleneal.com. I love it. I love it. And you said there's going to be more books coming soon? Yeah. So eventually I want to write more books. Obviously, this first one is the, well, it's the first one. Mm-hmm. But the, 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 goal, the, the premise for all, any future books would be my nephew asking me a question and me using science to answer it. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we definitely look forward to it. I, I love the premise of it. You are welcome back on the Black Equity Podcast to discuss any topic, uh, especially if something in the news pops up about uh, STEM. I definitely want you back on the, on the show so we can talk about things that are happening in STEM. I know one of the things that I've hear, heard a lot about is we need to get more, um, I guess, more Black girls into STEM because there's, there's a lack of, of Black women in the STEM. Have you, have you seen the evidence of that? What I've seen evidence of is there's a lack of black people in STEM. Okay. So it's, black people in general. <laughs> black people in general. So okay. yeah, there are definitely groups out there that focus more on, on, on black girls. But my my argument would be it's not as if black boys are overrepresented. We black boys need the help too. And I, I just don't see a reason why there'd be organizations that help one and not the other. Yeah, you know, that's always kind of confused me. You know, I, I pride myself on making sure that we have a lot of really dope black women on this uh, podcast. But a lot of what I hear the feedback is, is we got to focus on the girls. We got to focus on the girls. And I just, you know, I was a, I was a young boy once and nobody really focused on us. And not at all. And not at all. And so I'm like, okay, when are we going to focus on the black boy? And so then I realized, well, I guess it's going to have to come from people like you and I. Where we're, I guess we're going to have to, but see, I, the kind of heart I have, I couldn't just do a program that's for black boys in STEM. I, I do, feel the same way. I would do <laughs> I a program for, for both. For both. I, I want to see both do well. I want to see the black community do well, not just one segment of it. It doesn't make sense to me, but I, I, I get it. I, I guess I get it. But yeah, the, the, like, well, you better than me. I don't. Imagine <laughs> me calling this the, the black man podcast. Like I, 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 the reason why it's black equity because it's, it's supposed to be all of us having ownership. Yeah, yeah, I, I fully agree. That's why I, I don't understand it myself. So I went to, <laughs> so I went to this, uh, this organization just actually earlier this week, and they were telling me that they have a program, a robotics program for girls in eleventh to twelfth grade, and I, and there's, I was, and I asked them, well, what about the boys? And the woman said, well, we have the program for girls because girls are underrepresented in STEM. And I looked at her and I said, I'm underrepresented in STEM. Yeah. Mm. And so does she does she say anything back or she just makes a face or what what does she do from there? Uh, she changed the subject pretty quick. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I'm noticing that a lot, Neil. I'm noticing this push towards um black girls being in, in certain things, not even just them, but just overall. And I'm, I'm all for that. Don't get me wrong. But it, I, I'm challenging all the women out there who are listening to this podcast. If you're creating platforms, and especially if it's for a black culture, and we're talking about diversity and inclusion was part of this, this podcast, I guess that's the one time that I do want some diversity and inclusion which would be black boys and black girls should be, have equal representation uh, going forward. We can't only teach one part of our culture because those black boys and black girls need to work together because they may both, if they can work together, they may be able to put their ideas together and birth something beautiful. But if we only allow one segment to have it happen, we'll never know how magical that could be. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, frankly, I don't understand why you'd want to focus on one and not the other. I, I, I just don't get it. But, but so then so then the conspiracy theory creeps into my mind okay. so I don't you know I'm, it's not fully formed but if you're not focusing on black boys in STEM or anything you know besides football and basketball if, if you're not focusing on black boys then maybe you don't care it's that simple not, nothing over the top conspiracy theory just a, a simple theory 
maybe you, not you, but whoever's out there, maybe they just don't care about black boys um, anymore. And, and maybe there's no care for it. Because I'll be honest with you, I never felt it growing up. I always felt like the, the girls got more uh, resources than the boys. But then we grow up and they say, no, the, the, girl, the girls have been underrepresented. And it's, it's like, well, I, I haven't experienced that. But, you know, I've always felt like the girls had more opportunities than the boys did growing up outside of sports. I mean, if if as a as a black man outside of of the NBA and and prison, where am I overrepresented? Like, I'm trying uh, to figure that out, my brother. <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out, and I and the weird thing is, I grew up noticing this, but I would never say, "Well, we're going to do this for the black boys." And no matter what, it still has to be both, even if I have noticed that, hey, we've been underrepresented too. And so you know, I challenge people out there who have built their programs around just for the, for uh, girls and for women. I challenge you, let's build it for all of us. You know what? This might be a controversial thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. So from what I understand with the, I guess, with the feminism movement, it's it's it's, it was started obviously by white women and they saw white men as being there, you know, oppressing them and mm-hmm. they want to, they want to have more, you know, equal power to white men. Well, I, I would hope that in the black community, they don't believe the same thing. I mean, black men cannot oppress black women. If anything, black women are doing better than, than black men. So this idea of separating us is just us being separated just doesn't make any sense to me. We're, we're much stronger together than we are apart. Black women have started the most businesses uh, of anyone. They they are the most educated, and I believe the black woman is God. I love black women. I'm all for it, and I support it. But at some point, we have to recognize: okay, this is getting a little. Like matter of fact, I'll say this one last thing. I was speaking with someone online about um, they were talking about a seat at the table, and they were saying that they wouldn't mind having a, a, a table where it was all women and no men because men have, you know, had the t- had a seat at the table all these years. And I'm thinking to myself... Wait, you're talking about black men? Just men. Oh, okay, they, okay. They've lumped us into uh, what the white what white guys have been doing all these years. Somehow, you serious? Yes. They've, they've lumped us... Uh, <laughs> I don't know how. But it What's is a... There's, damn table. there's a there's a there's a a subtle gender war out here. I don't know why, my brother, but there's oh a there's gosh. a there's a, a gender war that some women want only women at their table. And and I and I remember saying this on Twitter to the person that's doing it. And this person has a book. They're running around. They're doing speaking gigs, and they're going around creating a narrative that you know women should have their own table, and they they should be off to themselves. And then, wait, wait. When you say women, you mean women of all races? That's just... the that's the impression that I have. But I can oh. tell that most people that were coming to these events were were black women. But that's the impression that I had was it was all women. And hey, if that is your agenda, that's fine. But so you know, I, I felt really disheartened when I heard that. And God bless. As soon as I found that out. And I, I was just feeling some type of way. A lot of black women rushed in and said, no, we need both of us at the table. So the, I'm not saying that all black women feel that way, but there, okay, is, good, good, good. there is some people out here that are like, women, 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 we don't need men at all. And it's like, wow, when did this happen? And their, their excuse is men have always had the say. And I'm just thinking to myself, what black men? What, what say black men have? When did we? We're <laughs> finally getting. We're finally, you know, at this point where we can work together, and you're running off. And so, you know, I, I, I'm glad we're, we're documenting that, and hopefully, for our beautiful black women out there, know that we want to work together and build platforms for both genders uh, for us to all all, all thrive. You know, DJ, I'm black first, man. I'm a male second. That's and, and you know, when you say it, that's how you say it. You say black man. Yeah. Black comes first. You're right. That that's the way I always felt too. And I'm I'm glad that we're attracting black men and women on this podcast who understand that and are looking to work together. And for for black men out there who are only building platforms for just black men, I'm just not interested in working with you. I'll be honest with you. I've seen that too. I've seen 
black men out there that never really have any women on their podcast or, or have any type of uh, exposure to how a woman thinks. I don't really want to work with that person either. I want true, uh, I guess, inclusion of black culture uh, represented with all perspectives. That's just the way I've always viewed it. Yeah, same. I, and as I said earlier, I don't understand why you'd want to focus on one and not the other. I mean, you had kids, you had boys and girls. It's, it, you want stuff for one and not the other? It just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense either, now. I'm glad you came on the show today. It was a much-needed conversation. Make sure you check out his course. Make sure you check out his book. And thank you again for coming on the Black Equity Podcast. Thanks for having me, DJ. This was fun. Yeah, come back again anytime. I will. A great conversation. We learned about public speaking. We talked about diversity and inclusion. Is it needed? Is it not needed? And there's so many different sides to this. There's no right or wrong answer. And then we are able to look at, you know, the country as a whole and, and, and studying race relations. And then also looking at, you know, these so-called gender wars out here. It's a great conversation. Neil, thank you for coming on the Black Equity Podcast. Thank you for everyone for listening. And make sure you subscribe. Make sure you're following us on Instagram over at Black Equity Network. And make sure you tune in for the next episode of the Black Equity Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Black Equity Podcast. I am inviting you to join the exclusive Sip and Share Wine Club, which offers monthly and quarterly memberships available, deliveries of two, four, or six bottles of sweet, dry, or both wines right to your door at a 10% discount. Only 100 monthly members accept it. Begin enjoying all the privileges and benefits that go along with belonging to the club. There is no fee to join. You only pay the cost of your wine plus tax and shipping. Two wines is $38 plus tax and shipping. Four wines is $76 plus tax and shipping. And six wines is $114 plus taxes and shipping. Once again, join the Sip and Share Wine Club. This is your invite. Only 100 monthly members accepted.